Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 6, Episode 13, presented by Marketile. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. In this episode, we're kicking off a series of fantastic interviews conducted at Shop Talk in Las Vegas in the WiseLine Podcasting Studio, aka our modified beach cabana at Mandalay Bay. And our first guest is Judith McKenna, President and CEO, Walmart International. Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun to record Judith. Uh, it was a little bit chilly. I think we mentioned that in the interview. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, try to uh, wasn't exactly beach weather, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And she is such a fascinating person, yeah. and she runs just a little little corner of Walmart, just like uh, what a hundred billion dollars or so, I think. So. Yeah, and it wasn't nineteen countries or something. I just yeah. it's, just, it's it's a really fascinating interview because I, I it just the experience someone who's got that kind of breadth, not just the number of people or number of stores, but just the you know each market's different, so different, right? So it's very very impressive, uh, very impressive person, and 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 a great interview. And speaking of great interviews. Um, and I'm sure everyone in listening will enjoy your interview on the NRF's Retail Gets Real podcast. They don't actually often interview folks like yourself. Usually they're standing C-level executives. So, um, folks, folks like myself? What does that mean, Michael? <laughs> well, not sitting uh, retailers. Usually ah, they... Ah, uh, ah, ah, like recovering, recovering retailers. <laughs> exactly. Uh, ho- listen, host uh, Bill Thorne. I've, I've met Bill a bunch of times. He does a great job on the podcast. Did you, uh, did you enjoy your experience on the other side of the mic? Yeah, it was it was fun. Yeah, Bill's Bill's a good guy, and uh, we actually were going to record that live at NRF, and that didn't quite mm-hmm. work out. So we did it the old the way we do most of our interviews. The I can't say the old fashioned way, but the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the remote way. And uh, yeah, it was a good conversation. It was fun. Uh, last chance for anybody who might still be on the fence about joining us in Barcelona at the World Retail Congress. Get yourself a nice discount with our offer code in the show notes. We've got some interviews lined up for that, so we'll bring a little bit of that insight. Uh, back with us now for those of us uh, we were talking about this in in las vegas a lot more people are traveling these days spending a bunch of hours on airplanes including myself any suggestions for reading material between episodes of uh, succession any uh, any ideas well i'm going to be a hype man for uh, my buddy seth godin he's got a book coming out in just a few weeks called the song of significance and it's about the future of work and leading teams and i was able to get a preview copy of it. Mm. And I think it's, uh, you know, kind of typical Seth breezy style, very much to the point, very thought provoking and uh, pretty, pretty quick read. So if uh, folks want to go out and pre-order that, I'm sure Seth Mm -hmm. would appreciate it. And I think they'll, they'll find it very inspiring, you know, some good ideas in there for leadership. Yeah, Seth's been uh, generous enough to be on the podcast a couple of times. We'll put a link in the show notes where you can uh, order, uh, get your get, get in line for a copy coming out. To, when when is it coming out? The summer is it to mid mid summer? Uh, May thirtieth, I believe. Last last oh, okay. whatever the last Tuesday in May is. All right. Well, let's get into the news. Uh, I noticed that uh, revised U.S. jobless claim numbers may be painting a shifting picture. You know, one month doesn't make a trend necessarily. What did you think about the numbers that came out? So we've talked about the strong job market quite a bit on the podcast. We've also talked about how across the last several months, there have been a number of very large firms that have done pretty sizable layoffs, including companies like Amazon. And yet the jobless claims number has been flat or has been going down. And that didn't quite line up. The thought, though, was that, well, there are many more new jobs being created, and that's just sort of absorbing these uh, these layoffs. Well, it turns out that the Bureau of Labor Statistics here in the U.S. redid their numbers because the way they were seasonally, and I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but as I understand it, the way they were seasonally adjusting the number 
was actually not right. Mm. Uh, so they went back and relooked at it, and that's actually shown that the jobless claims numbers have actually been going up. Not a mm. lot, uh, but this this idea that the trend was either down or pretty much flat, it's mm. now looking like that actually the jobless claims are creeping up. So that was some of the other data that we've just seen makes makes it look like maybe things are uh, the job market's not quite as robust as it's appeared to have been the last few months. Let's talk about uh, one of our favorite retailers, RH. They uh, put their earnings out and a uh, bit of a slowdown for sure, but uh, it's a well-run business. What did you make out of uh, what they had to say? Well, yeah, it was kind of a mixed picture. Um, as we've talked about a bunch of times, the home category's been been pretty challenging the last year or so, largely because of the pull forward in demand uh, due to COVID, but also just in general, kind of the slowdown in um, in the home market. So RH did uh, show a sales decline, a pretty healthy sales decline. I think it was about 14%, you know, it's pretty, pretty large yeah. uh, decrease. Well, what was interesting was that they still have really great profitability. Their operating margins are like 22% which you don't hear very many companies mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. have those kind of operating margins. Now, that is down from a year ago, but still quite robust. So mm-hmm. um, <laughs> if people are curious, I would go read Gary Friedman, the CEO, and really the visionary <laughs> behind the new strategies mm-hmm. um, management discussion, uh, <laughs> because it's pretty, it's pretty entertaining. Gary's not a shy guy and, uh, yeah. he's a little bit, uh, a little bit ranty, but, uh, but the good news for them going forward is they're continuing to pursue opening new galleries. Uh, those are the bigger stores, mm-hmm. opening more of these design studios, which are smaller formats for smaller markets. They're still investing behind their hotels and restaurants. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. they're absolutely, uh, still full speed ahead, as far as I can tell, in terms of their expansion strategy, which is pretty heavy or starting to be pretty heavily tilted towards Europe, where they'll be opening a bunch of locations oh, across the next couple of years. Well, it, you know, my experience of that brand is less about shopping them in a conventional sense and more about their platform. I, you know, when I was in New York, I, I love their RH guest house, not to stay there in this occasion, but I went there for breakfast a couple of times. Fantastic. Let's talk about Costco. Uh, so they've been on a tear. Talk about Defying Gravity. They've been on a tear for, for years. I mean, they they are a an immense retailer. They actually knocked out the uh, LCBO in Ontario as the number one wine seller in the world. Talk about what you see from their uh, from their numbers. Well, one of the things that Costco does, this isn't actually an earnings report. It's um, They do these periodic sales reports. And uh, for the first time, and I believe it's three years, they had a monthly comp store sales decrease. And, you know, not only what you're saying about how they performed so well historically, they're also huge. They're the third biggest mm. retailer on the planet. I didn't quite realize they had gotten to be yeah, yeah. that big. So uh, they've been, I think, also viewed as a, a bit, you know, of an essentials kind of retailer. Mm-hmm. You could argue They've benefited from the COVID period as more people were not eating out and, you know, these kinds of things. So the fact that they are starting to see a slowdown, now it's only one month, uh, you know, really kind of spooked Wall Street in particular and is just kind of part of this narrative. Uh, We've got Mm. some other data points in addition to the jobless claim uh, numbers that make it sound like, okay, yeah, we're really starting to see much a much more tangible slowdown, particularly in these more essential retailers, which is not where we've seen any weakness really in the past year or two. 
Speaking of essential retailers, uh, let's talk about Walmart uh, here in the United States versus international. They've put out some a bunch of announcements this week, actually covering a bunch of things. What uh, what did you make of all the different things that they had to say? It, it is a coincidence that we've got a bunch of Walmart news yeah. with uh, with Wal- with a great Walmart executive coming on. But yeah, they had I guess four things that were kind of interesting uh, this year. The the big one I thought from the um, their investor week or their sorry their. Uh, Investor Day, I guess you call it, mm-hmm. conference was they announced, and this is hard to get my head around. Uh, they believe they're going to be able to add one hundred and thirty billion dollars in incremental sales over the next five years. Incremental and on top incremental. of what they're already doing, right? Right. So that yeah. is, I think, I, I believe Target's annual sales total annual sales number is just under that. So it's like adding on a, a Target plus. Yeah. Over the next five yeah. years, and when you think about how mature, seemingly mature mm-hmm. uh, and vast a business Walmart already is, that's yeah. pretty phenomenal. So I, that that's just kind of mind blowing. They also, this is a little bit more tactical, but I think interesting is they also uh, very recently revamped their website, and it's a much cleaner layout. And I think it really stands in stark contrast to Amazon's website, which mm-hmm. to me is just unnecessarily cluttered. Uh, mm-hmm. It's actually more similar to the look and feel of the Target site. And it just really presents a contrast between somebody who obviously has a vast assortment. You know, they're in all sorts of categories. They have a very big marketplace. But yeah. presenting it, I think, in a much more user-friendly way. Uh, so it'll, it'll be interesting. I, I still think that at some point Amazon has really got to take on their, their site uh, design and navigation because I think it's really gotten almost unshoppable at this point. And then uh, part of their investor day discussion was a lot of the investments they're making in automation and new technology. They've got a very mm-hmm. aggressive, as one might imagine, they've got a very aggressive capital plan for technology, but the particular focus was on automation. And one of the things they said is that 60, I'm not sure exactly what this means, but that um, 65% of their stores will have a large automation component within the next mm-hmm. few years. And that 50% of their e-commerce orders will be fully automated. Um, you know, basically a human being won't be touching the order as it goes through that, that whole process. So I think some of this would happen anyway, but I imagine a lot of this is being driven by some of the labor challenges and, and just sure. the advancement in robotics and, and things like that. Things. And then the last thing was, um, and you flagged this story about uh, there, I had, I had missed this, about how they're planning to or to um, have uh, EV charging stations added mm-hmm. to thousands of their locations across yeah. the last few years. So uh, I, th- I think that's pretty interesting to see a big retailer really get uh, much more fully behind the um, EV movement. Yeah, for sure, firing in all cylinders. So let's let's move to the other end of the spectrum. Let's ah, let's take let's pay a visit to the. The Wobbly Unicorn Corner, where we have some uh, some breaking news uh, from one of these SPACs, uh, whatever that means. I don't really know what that means, but it, <laughs> I know what bankruptcy means. So what, what's, what's on your mind? Yeah, well, I think we flagged this as something that was likely to happen. So Boxed, which is um, a pretty well-funded, well, it's not a startup anymore, but they were in the business of basically providing essentials, uh, you know, health and beauty aids and products like that. Uh, they've had many quarters of decent sales growth, but very poor profits, kind of the story that we've been talking about for a while. 
and they actually uh, file for in a pure play way, in a pure play way, (laughs) in a pure play way. And uh, yes, so unfortunately, they filed for bankruptcy. So we will see whether they're able to get out from uh, from that. You know, I think what's tough about a bankruptcy filing for their sort of retail is it's not like they're say doing what what's probably pretty likely to happen with Bed Bath Beyond here in the next couple of weeks. It's not like they're trying to get out of all these leases. Uh, mm. You know, it's really I, I imagine to get out of a lot of debt. Uh, you know, they they have fulfillment facilities and things like that. But I, I think it's a little a little trickier when you've been hemorrhaging cash to the degree that they have been for the last couple of years to to see how they come out largely intact but we shall Mm. see and then uh not nearly as dire news but kind of a similar business model in a way chewy.com which is in the Mm -hmm. pet business but but also a pure play uh they are closing a couple of fulfillment centers and now they are not performing amazingly well but they've been growing nicely they've more or less broken even the last few quarters so not strong profitability but not Mm -hmm. losing Mm -hmm. money the way some of these other brands that we've talked about have but i imagine that uh you know there's a lot of you know they may be seeing signs of a slowdown and they're really trying to manage their profitability Mm -hmm. we've seen quite a lot of uh even walmart has Mm -hmm. uh done some pushback or pullbacks in their uh fulfillment operations just as kind of e-commerce which is like a reset of the uh amount of of uh fulfillment capacity essentially that's that's necessary a lot of people invested kind of ahead of the curve there and it turns out that volume doesn't look like it's going to be there anytime soon you mentioned uh, bed bath and beyond i was i was struck reading the news about uh they're doing all kinds of uh financial gymnastics that are pretty impressive i I wish they were that creative around their merchandising strategy as around the (laughs) pre-bankruptcy financing because every every week there's a well we've got a new deal for our accounts receivable and we got we're going reverse stock Holes and yeah. What do you what do you think about all this? Well, I you know I didn't understand. I think if people go back or they might recall when we've talked about Bed Bath and Beyond's financing multiple times here when they first did the the deal to stay out of bankruptcy, the billion dollar thing with Hudson Bay Capital. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that at all, and uh, it turns out that fell apart. So maybe and then nobody else did either. Yeah, apparently nobody else understood it as well. Um, yeah, they're they're. I mean, they're just holding on for dear life here and and trying different things to get enough cash to operate the business. I think it was last week or the week before where we talked about how their sales were down forty to fifty percent over last year. I mean, it's just hard to imagine, you know, how how you keep a business going with with that kind of deceleration. And then on top of it, of course, you know, one of the big problems when there are rumors of bankruptcy is that all your vendors get freaked out That's right. and they don't want to ship unless they get paid in cash. And so it just makes a very difficult situation even more challenging. So that, you know, they've got a great brand in a lot of respects. They have a unique position in terms of being kind of this category killer for the mix of goods that they have. So I think there is a space in the market in theory, but whether they'll be able to navigate through these choppy waters when, uh, you know, it's like, What's the expression catching a falling knife? I think you like to say, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty tough. And, you know, obviously the economy doesn't, you know, it's not like you're, it looks to be a booming economy. So it's very tough. I think very tough environment to raise money in. Now, just before we get to our great interview with Judith McKenna from Walmart, a quick shout out as kids would say uh, to Judith, both Judith and Amy, who helped us uh, arrange for the interview for their patience and being open 
to the experience of a different location for a podcasting studio by the beach in Mandalay Bay. And for the listeners, uh, instead of hearing the usual kind of buzza buzza background you might hear from some of our other uh, show podcasts, you'll hear a bit of music in the background. So that's because we were on the beach uh, enjoying uh, some of the sun and um, not so warm weather, but it was uh, it was still great. So uh, let's get to that right after hearing from our presenting sponsor. There are two types of retailers, those that are committed to transforming at the speed of disruption and those that aren't. If you're a retailer that implements significant changes by intuition, you may soon join the hall of shame of executives who bet the farm on initiatives that ultimately failed, so maybe consider brushing up your resume. But if you're a retailer hungry for a better way to gain useful insights on the impacts of your store layout, design, and strategic initiatives, you need to know Marketile. Marketile is an easy-to-use testing platform that emboldens great decisions, leading to reliable, scalable results. With Marketile, you can be confident in the outcome of your in-store pilot initiatives before rolling them out across your fleet. Validate your remarkable ideas with Marketile's in-store testing solution. The proof is in the testing. Learn more at Marketile.com. That's Marketile.com. Well, Judith, welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast. We're here on a chilly day by the beach, so we're going to try to persevere through this. But thanks for, for joining us. Steve, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invite. Well, we're, we're delighted to have you. So we generally like to start out by having our guests tell us a bit about who they are, their professional journey, what their current roles and responsibilities are, which for you is quite vast. So maybe we have to allow a little bit extra time. But yeah, just tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So I, um, I'm a Brit. I started as a, an accountant back in the UK, um, chartered accountant, made my way um, through an accountant's firm, KPMG, and then uh, went into the pub and brewing industry, mm. which was a little different. Um, <laughs> after a few years there, I um, found myself at Asda, which was a UK retailer, which was sure. a public company at the time. Um, in finance and um, I made my way through finance and one day Walmart came along and bought Asda and that's how I joined the Walmart family in 27 years as part of uh, as part of Walmart now so I winded my career through to become CFO there for 10 years and ultimately um, then became the chief operating officer so a bit of a career change to go with that as well and then 10 years ago, uh, the then head of international, a guy called Doug McMillan, said to me, why don't you come Familiar to... Familiar with his word, that name. In, yeah. Indeed, <laughs> he's a good yeah. guy. Um, he said, why not come to America? And I was like, do you know what? Okay, and my family, I have two kids and my husband. We thought we'll go on an adventure. So we did. And I became the head of strategy for Walmart International 10 years ago. And then moved into the U.S. business to do this little job to do with neighborhood markets, which were mm. small stores. Right. They mm. were big stores to me in the U.K. Mm. And then I look after the intersection of digital and physical. To cut a very long story short, I then found myself as a chief, opera- chief operating officer for Walmart U.S. So 1.4 million people mm. as a duty of care to and 4,500 stores, which is quite the most privileged to be able to do Mm, that. It's a mm. remarkable job. And then uh, five years ago, I moved into this role. So I now um, head up um, Walmart International. We operate in 19 countries around the world. We have 550,000 associates, and we have seven primary businesses that we 
operate. It's a just over a hundred billion dollar <laughs> business in its own right. So mm. um, that keeps me out of mischief, and it's yeah, a no huge amount of fun to do it. Well, just as an aside, I don't know. You probably wouldn't know this, but my business school classmate is now running the neighborhood uh, business, Calvin. So ah, uh, excellent, and <laughs> yes. he's doing a fantastic yes, job. I'm I have sure to tell he is. you, he's a great guy. We reconnected after like not ah, how cool having talked to each other for Retail like 25 years. Is such a small world, yeah. like globally, it's yeah. incredible. Yeah, but uh, so. Just how do you go about, um, and I'm, this could be a whole podcast, but just dealing <laughs> with not only the size of the business, but the diversity, all the different countries you operate in. I, can't, I mean, just the scale and scope and complexity of that yeah. seems enormous. Can you give us any sense for how you've approached that and the kinds of things you've learned in, in the role all this yeah. time? So the primary thing is to have brilliant teams everywhere. Sure. Like that, that is the heart of being able to run an international business because at the end of the day, you're not there. And it's not like an operating business that you've got hands-on every day of the week. Right. So the quality of the teams that we have around the world, the experience of those teams is huge. I also spend a lot of time trying to understand the markets in which we operate, not just our businesses, mm. but the markets in which we operate. So the political environments, the social environments, the economic environments, how that intersects, what trade they do with other countries. So you build up a picture of the customer there mm -hmm. as well. And there's this really clear fact to me, which is customers are more alike around the world than they are different. Mm. And once you understand that, then sometimes managing that sort of scale becomes easier. Sure. So great teams, a natural curiosity about each market in which we operate and how they fit into the world and their customers. And then the third thing is just a really clear strategy. Yeah. So we have a very simple aligned strategy, which is strong local businesses powered by Walmart. Mm. We're not trying to be identical everywhere. We're trying to be local where we need to be, but only kind of different where we absolutely have to be. So that combination and that strategy gives you the flexibility to be able to deal with whatever may come your way, which has been quite a lot over the last few years. <laughs> yeah, I've, heard, I've heard something about that. You know, it's interesting because, I, yes, I assume that the Walmart business, the fundamental Walmart business model ethos is consistent. Yeah. Uh, but it has to adapt to some local um, circumstances. Are there any particular things that have either been particularly difficult to execute or maybe surprises that you've learned to say, well, actually, this is something for our audience, they might be able, if they operate in different countries, yeah. they might be able to, to take to their own business. Yeah, so, so you're exactly right. What we're common is our purpose. We save people money so they can live better, which is kind of our strategy in some ways as well. Sure. Um, we are um, very clear about what we will do, everyday low prices and everyday low cost. That is applicable mm -hmm. around the world. So these things that we have everywhere resonate with customers. So the least surprising thing is this point about customers and how mm. you can serve customers. They want trust, they want access, they want value. So we focus very clearly on some of those kind of areas. What surprised me maybe, um, it was really interesting during the pandemic, so we brought um, online grocery from the UK. We started it in the US. Right. Um, and we had it in a couple of markets around the world, but it was really quite nascent. As the pandemic hit and we had to step everything up, the speed with which, because we had a blueprint for how to do it, 
we could execute it around the world. In fact, there's a great story in Central America who I think we had like on the roadmap like five years time to start to do this. Mm. They stood it up in two weeks. Mm. The great acceleration, as our friend Carl Boutet would say. <laughs> it's right? a great way to think about it. And I just wish I could bottle some of that capability mm. that we experienced mm. then, which is nothing is impossible mm. and there are ways to do it. But that common blueprint for doing things you tailor it you have the nuances for the local customer and what that looks like but actually it lets you execute at scale which mm. is really what we're all about mm. i'll bring michael in in a second but just a, this is a question i've asked several folks on the podcast over the last couple of years it, it's this idea that you know why does it take a crisis for retailers to innovate and so i on the one hand i love that that so many organizations took the plunge and discovered that not everything has to be perfect or not everything has to take two or three years but does that bug you at all that that you know creating it's one thing to have that urgency because you're staring in the face of a crisis or you're you know just situations force you to take action but at the same time there's lots of really good ideas that could have been implemented earlier I'm not saying in your particular case yeah. but but it is that I'm not sure what my question is exactly, but is that tension? I know exactly you? what you mean, which is um, why does it take something like that to do some of the things we do? And I think it's because it's inevitable. Mm. Because we all have roadmaps, we all have strategies. The world around us moves at a certain pace. Mm. What creates that change is the world changes. It's not just we change, we re yeah. react and adapt to the world. And I think that part of it is something that we're continuing to refine how we how we do it. I think the thing that I saw most, and I don't know how your other guests found this, which is the silos within the organization were falling down. Mm. And people learned to work collaboratively and together in ways that in my years in retail, <laughs> I hadn't really seen happen in mm. that way. What I'm excited about is I'm seeing some of that learning stay. Mm. And well, that was, yeah, that was kind of my follow-on question is can yeah. you bottle that and yeah. rinse and repeat? Because everyone had, I mean, the one thing about the COVID years, there was a unifying mission. Yeah. We, you know, we're going to take care of our people. We're going to get through it. That's right. And everyone could agree on that. Yeah. And, you know, let's hope we don't have another unifying mission like that, but kind of manufacturing that kind of same yeah. uh, momentum, right? Yeah. I can, it must occupy your time. It, it does, but I think we already had a good foundation of mm. having the same mission everywhere. Like, this is a purpose-driven company, yeah. and you've been around us long enough to know that we truly have that at the heart of what we do. It's saving people money so they can live better. So that was already there. It was just in what priority order you do some of the things that you do. The piece for me that changed was powered by Walmart. Strong mm. local businesses, I think we'd, we'd got there. But the powered by Walmart was still a bit of a push and pull. Mm. And what happened was everybody said, no, 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 no. I suddenly see what the benefit of being global is and how I can leverage that. And, and that... I'm so fortunate that that has stayed with people because we showed what that benefit looks like. Mm -hmm. Well, you're here at Shop Talk in, uh, in Las Vegas. You're going to be on the stage with our friend uh, Phil, a fellow uh, Canadian from uh -huh. Fortune. What are you going to be, uh, what kind of knowledge? You never be? misses an opportunity to, <laughs> to mention other Canadians. It was, it, yeah, it's not, never, I never miss that opportunity. Member of the Commonwealth, fellow member of the Commonwealth. I, I, yeah. we, we've already talked about this. Um, yeah, I am. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about future of retail, innovation around the world, mm. what this global platform that we have is allowing us mm 
to see. So there should be some exciting topics in there to chat through. So I'm excited about it. It is, um, it is one of those periods of time, now we're back out on the road again, yeah, yeah. Um, where we get to see not only our own retail, but other retailers mm. as well and, and see what's going on. So hopefully we're going to touch on some of those things. And I think still this question of how do you run a global retailer? Yeah, yeah. Part of well, it. you know, you've been, not to drop Canada again, but you, your business has been remarkably successful in Canada. Yeah. And, and I understand you're, you're doing some investments in Mexico. So talk about that, how you're kind of leveraging that ethos in, in Mexico. Yeah, so I was in Canada recently, actually. The business is um, mm-hmm. going great there. So um, Mexico is just an incredible market. It's a publicly listed company, Walmex. It operates across Mexico and Central America. They have about 3,700 stores, which gives them a reach in Mexico itself of about um, 88% of the population within 10 minutes of a store. Mm. And one of the things that I really like about what they're doing is they're so customer-centric. Like the customer and finding solutions to the customer's pain points are at the heart of everything that they do, which means that they have the bricks and mortar stores. They've built that into e-commerce, both um, first-party e-commerce and marketplace, as well Mm. as pickup and demand for groceries in stores. Mm. And they're now starting to build out on verticals of new businesses which serve customers and help find them solutions for the Mm. problems in their lives. So think about a payments app, Cashy. It's got well over 5 million users already, Mm. and it allows people to pay securely and safely in store and perhaps get credit if they need it using the same process. Mm. You've then got um, a really interesting one, which is um, the, the business in Mexico set out to try to figure out how to get more people shopping online and they realized they were actually solving the wrong problem Mm. because customers couldn't get online to begin with to begin with let alone to shop their issue was access to data Mm. so they introduced a product which we call byte uh, which is an internet Mm. and telecom business it now has over 5 million um, kind of active users yeah. in that as well. Yeah. And they're doing a remarkable job of joining those pieces together. So it started as a, how do I get you to shop online? It moved to, how do I just get you data to be online? And they have one of the largest MVNOs in Mexico now mm. as well. So this is a great business. It's got a growing economy. You know, the Mexico has got 130 million people and the average age is under 30. Yeah. So the growth potential, so we've got a great business. Which is not true structure. of a lot of nations around the world, right? Some are struggling with aging population or declining right. population growth, right? So it is, it is a great opportunity to develop. And we're fortunate, after the restructures of International we did over the last few years, that we've actually centered our businesses pretty much where we can see that there's future growth, both in natural momentums of those markets mm. and of our businesses as well. Mm-hmm. So Judith, can we talk a little bit about the role of innovation? Um, I'm curious both how innovation gets, a, you know, what's the process, how okay. you think through bringing innovation. And I'm also interested in, given the scope you have, uh, what's going on in other markets? Are there innovative markets or, or, or the countries where you're seeing innovation that our audience is mostly North America. We're fortunate to have people in lots of other countries, but maybe countries that other retailers, other members of our audience should be paying more attention to because of things that are happening. Yeah. So the process of innovation, I, I always smile at that one. I'm sure everybody's got a different answer to it. And I, you know, some people have little pods of innovation that they use. Some people, mm. if it's integrated into the business, right. we try and approach it by figuring out what problems we're trying to solve. Mm. 
And then we have technologists who think about that. We have operators who think about that. We have merchants that think about that. It tends to come together in um, some of our core teams, the product teams Mm -hmm. around the organization as well. And then we do have some teams who spend their lives scanning. Like, what is there out there? Might there be an application to this? So that's kind of the blue sky, not so blue sky. And they bring that back in. And we're fortunate to have some great people who join Dots to be able to do it. If I think about markets around the world, um, one that I think we should continue to pay attention to is India. Mm -hmm. Um, Incredible country, 1.4 billion people. A government there, you're probably aware, has really made a stand to digitize the whole Mm. country. We have an e-commerce business there and we have a payments business there as well. The payments business is PhonePay, e-commerce is Flipkart. What is interesting is the adoption of digital payment in that market and the innovation that they are bringing to that. So that platform already has about 400 million users and 36 million merchants connected <laughs> to hard. it. The numbers are just... I know, it's hard to even get your head Yeah, I can just, yeah. I can go further and tell you that their total payments value that moves through there has just hit the extraordinary $1 trillion mark. Wow. And I tell you that, the numbers are incredible, but it's actually to show how when you get an innovation or something that makes people's lives easier, that's connected into the infrastructure of how a country works, then actually it scales really fast. So it's an interesting one for me to think about core platforms that scale fast and what that looks like. So as you look at technology, are there, you know, beyond, I guess, sort of the obvious things that everybody's talking about, are there particular things that maybe you see more potential in that you don't generally see others in the industry focusing on? Yeah, I I mean, I think retail is retail. And I think we all have, you know, we all talk about social commerce. We all talk about, you know, what's the metaverse going to do and what are these areas? For me, this idea of personalization for people, Mm. I think is huge. And if you think about for a company that believes in strong local businesses, strong relationships with the individual customers in those businesses becomes even more valuable to us. And I think there is an interesting question on personalization, which is you need data to be able to do that. And then how do you put trust behind mm-hmm. that data yeah. as well. And the, you know, how do you make personalization real? Mm-hmm. As opposed to, we personalize, you yeah, get this right. kind of thing yeah. and you get this <laughs> kind of thing. And then, like, what is it? Which is more like gang tackling yeah, more than yeah. that personalization. Meaningful. Yeah. I make a difference in your life for what you can do. Mm-hmm. So I'm, that's one of the areas I'm particularly mm-hmm. interested in at the moment as well. So. And, and I imagine part of that is, um, I mean, it's first party, having per, first party data, right? It's also having that one-to-one relationship, the ability to connect with that customer yeah. on a one-to-one basis. I imagine the membership program is part of that. or the, I mean, I guess part of the things that I've observed about Walmart, um, you may know, I used to work at Neiman Marcus, and one of the okay. things that was great about Neiman Marcus was we had so much of our business done on our private label credit card. We had a clienteling relationship. We had a very big e-commerce business. So we were able to uniquely identify, even before all the Apple stuff, you know, we, yeah. we had that ability yeah. to reach a lot of customers and have an enormous amount of data, yeah. whereas the, you know, sort of the complaint about a lot of the big box retailers was they didn't have that kind of, they had lots yeah. of transactional data, yeah. but they didn't have a lot of individual data. Yeah. Um, are there particular things you're, well, do you, do you agree with that as a fundamental challenge? And then what are you doing to be able to, connect more directly with customers yeah. and leverage the, the data. The connection that you're trying to make all the time is the store data with the online data. Yeah. So online data we have, 
verticals data, the new businesses data we have, how do you start to connect that with the store data? Yeah. And doing it for us in an EDLP way. Yeah. Like that is the real piece for Walmart versus probably mm. a lot of other people in the way that we approach that. Sure. We're finding different ways to do it. It's not perfect yet. We obviously have a blueprint, which is Sam's Club, mm-hmm. which has right. all of the data, which yeah. is, you know, it, we can see what that can give us when we can do right. that and how we can serve customers better, but also advertisers better and think that way. So we're still working through how we do that. And I think some of it will come through triangulation yeah. of knowing what all of the data is out there. Some of it will be ours, as you say. There'll be other data as well, which not necessarily going down to the customer, you, Steve, yeah. but knowing what you do, how you think, right. maybe we can much start more relevant. relevancy yeah. rather than individual. Because you don't want this to be something where people go, oh, you know too much about me. Right. We right. actually want this to be something that people go, oh, that was really thoughtful of them to be yeah. able to do this. Yeah, sort of the thin line between relevant and creepy we used to talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true. And but, I, yeah. you know, yeah. one of the things we talk about a lot is how do you create trust? And you, know, you don't ever want to do something with customers' data that you wouldn't want to be done to you either. Mm. And I think that is a really good common sense, very Walmart sense check Mm. on how we think. What's your sense of what the future is going to look like? You know, we've got this sort of soft landing kind of narrative. (laughs) We've got the uh, recession is inevitable. Obviously, it's not exactly the same in every country around the world. But what's your general outlook and how is Walmart preparing for yeah, I whatever so, inevitabilities? So wish I had a crystal ball. Like <laughs> my life would be so much I don't know if it would be easier. I think I might just be like, oh really? I have one. It's just been in the shop for <laughs> Thank a Thank you years. very much indeed. If you just lend me it occasionally, yeah. that would be great. Um what do I think it's gonna look like? Um I think pretty much for the way the world is at the moment, almost any outcome could come out of this. <laughs> and I'm not just hedging my bets with that. Like mm. if you rewound over three, four years and asked anybody to keep predicting. I think the social um, and economic position I see globally Mm. is different to anything that we've experienced before. There are elements of it that are the same, but the whole Mm. is different. So I think it's difficult to see how that's going to play out. What I would advise, and we talk to all of our teams around the world is, you know, think about what different scenarios could be and how we would react to it. But we are... um, back at our foundation of what we do and who we are, whether times are good, Walmart should be there. Mm. If times are more challenging, Walmart should be there. And I think the fact that we've evolved the business over the last few years, you know, everybody knew us for low prices, Mm. um, but actually we're increasingly known for convenience as well. So we have a big food business, we have a general merchandise business, we have apparel businesses. So I hope that we fit into the fabric of people's lives and make that easier. How it's going to pan out economically, I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, but when you know, let me know. Uh, you'll be the first. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you very much you'll indeed. Be, you'll be the first. Uh, <laughs> now that I have your email. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Last question for you. Um, again, we could have an entire podcast on leadership lessons, but I wanted to, if you could share a couple of them. Like, I was reflecting on what you were talking about what you accomplished with a large team. So how much time do you spend on people versus operations and challenges? And just one or two things that you know you would share in terms of advice for the, for the listeners and fellow retailers. Yeah, so people, people, people. Teams, teams, teams. Um, never be afraid to um, give somebody a job who's bigger and brighter and better than you are. Mm. Like that mm. is just a fundamental in it. 
And then I have this little equation, which is, um, I've refined it over the years, which is EQ, IQ, RQ, HQ. Okay. So EQ and IQ, we all grew up mm-hmm. with. Like, yeah. this is what you need to be in business. Yeah. What I've discovered over the years from a leadership perspective, the RQ, which is um, resilience quoting. Mm-hmm. And that, that is that grit yeah, piece, yeah. that passion, that perseverance, that piece of it. I kind of added as I started to go through my career and we're dealing with more and more complex mm-hmm. situations. And then um, as we went through COVID, um, I realized that HQ, mm. which is the hope quotient, ah, yeah. is equally important. Mm. And that's about the inspiration that you give, the belief that you give to people that there is a path through, not only when there's a crisis, but there's a path through to win as a mm. business as well. So EQ, IQ, <laughs> RQ, HQ yeah. is kind of a, and I think, you know, am I in balance? Mm. across those things yeah. and am I helping my teams yeah, yeah. be able to balance those as well I'm going to pull in one quick thread and, and this, this resilience idea so I've, I've been told that um, executives are, are learning that the young executives that were brought on during the COVID era the couple of years feel like they grew up in a very difficult time and they might have more resilience or they're baked in resilience yeah. it's kind of like you know parents or grandparents growing up in the depression they they yeah. know tough times yeah. do, you, do you think we're a net if we try to get a net positive out of this covid thing is that one potential net positive that 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 quotient has gone up yeah i used to say in our business that that generation of leaders that are coming in through behind me it took all of my 30 years in business to even figure out what to do every day as new scenarios were hitting us they had an mba Mm. in weeks of the things (laughs) it took us years to be Mm. able to learn and i hope that does create a new generation Mm. of people and i think when we talk about resilience we we think about the ability to withstand shock The dictionary definition of it, and I'm the daughter of two English teachers, so I'm big into (laughs) definitions, is the ability to adapt to change. Mm. And that is the piece that if there's a thread of resilience that I hope there's a generation is learning is Mm. the ability to adapt to change. Because creating scaled change, um, particularly in um, businesses that have been around for a while, that takes a particular kind of resilience of its own sure, right. Sure, so sure. that's what I would think about that. Yeah, well, fantastic. Well, Judith, thanks so much for joining Steve and I in the Wise Line podcasting studio here at Shop Talk. <laughs> it was real fun uh, to get to know you, and, and uh, thanks so much for spending a bit of time with us, and, and I wish you safe travels, and good luck on the stage tomorrow. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to both of you. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to drop us that five-star review. New episodes of Season 6, presented by Market Dial, we show up each and every Tuesday. Be sure to tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker. You can learn more about me on LinkedIn, and you can catch up with Steve and me at the World Retail Congress, April 25th, in Barcelona. Until then, safe travels, everyone.